2: Who's on? Is
3: that?
2: That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. those does go That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Oh, you can laugh. World Cup? I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did yeah. you want? I wanted to stay alive for six days. I'd you. say it to, your face, not say it to well, you. Now. I'm
3: down Swansfield, and we'll see them,
2: will with What you doing down here, you me, man?
0: It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast at the start of Christmas week. How are you again? Feeling Christmas?
3: Yeah, good. How are you? Well.
0: I'm not too bad. I'm too, a little bit disappointed with you,
3: actually. Yeah, one
0: particular moment. Well, one particular moment. I, I found the Arsenal Liverpool game. Fascinating, I must say. Two teams with two teams with, um, I don't know, d- differing reasons for not being very confident in themselves. But uh, Fabio Barini, so it's great, you know, good goals, plenty of talking points. Fabio Barini gets red carded, right? And I've my latest obsession when watching football matches is to see how supporters and teammates react to a guy getting sent off. Uh, this has started, again because I finally got around to watching that Zidane Zidane movie oh, yeah. uh, about seven years after it actually came out. If people remember, this is, uh, Zidane, a 21st century portrait yeah. where he's followed around by... It's a very artsy. It's a very artsy movie. It's a very boring movie. <laughs> it's uh, Well, it has its moments, again, but you do uh. have to watch through an entire... Uh, essentially, an entire match that Real Madrid were playing against Villarreal just following Zidane and his movements around. But, it, and I remember you not particularly um, enjoying it at the time, so I thought, well, presumably nothing happens in this movie. Mm. It's just a quiet game for his hand. Little realising he goes absolutely crazy and the, the mad switch in his head flicks at but, some point yeah. and he gets sent off, right, for, uh, I can't remember, it was, it was pretty deserved anyway. He, he uh, got involved in a couple of altercations. Gets red-carded. All the players come over to him. Raul comes over to him, starts hugging him, almost apologising that on behalf of the referee that, the great Zidane gets sent off. Beautiful wide shot then of the entire stand rising to applaud Zidane as yeah. after letting his teammates say I'm completely... Well the, done. Yeah, the unnamed uh, or, or certainly um, very vaguely remembered Real Madrid manager at the time. I'm going to say Luxembourg, Okay, yeah. One of these managers who was there for a year is also applauding him, shaking his hand <laughs> as he's going off. I think this is crazy. And a couple of days after watching that, there was a BT Sport game Is on, uh, one of the games they were covering... I can't remember what it was, but Jermaine Genus watched, a uh, uh, player in that game had been congratulated essentially again by his teammates and by, and Genas, I don't understand this. I don't know why a player ever gets applauded or or in any way thanked by teammates when he gets sent off. It's the worst thing you can actually do when you're involved in a team sport is uh, remove yourself from the action. So I was waiting with Beta Brett to see, uh, I'd say these Liverpool players might be a bit annoyed with Barini here, but he shot down the tunnel so quickly. It was too fast to even register a reaction among the supporters.
3: Did he shout something on the way? I thought he was shouting something. I I wasn't really sure. I mean, Barini, obviously his head was, um, you know, like when you, when you uh, shake a Coke bottle and it all starts to kind of fizz up and, you know, it was a high pressure situation (laughs) going on in Fabio Barini's mind, which I mean, wouldn't be necessarily the first time. I mean, he did, uh, if you recall, turn down that move to Sunderland, um, Fabio Bruni could have been celebrating with with, uh, Sunderland, who beat Newcastle on the weekend, but instead he's getting sent off at Anfield. In what might be his last game for them, actually, because obviously he's going to be banned for the next game, probably won't get back in, to be fair, because I'm not sure if anyone really wants to see him back in the team. And then he may be sold in January. Um, But I suppose the the fundamental problem was that uh, the linesman disrespected him as a man. In what way? by awarding the throw incorrectly to Arsenal. Fabio Verrini just wasn't prepared to put up with that. I mean, this is a guy who, remember his tweet tweet, um, around the time of the (laughs) the Sunderland deal? Finally, the madness is finished. I protected the man and the player that I am. Man, capitalized. Mm -hmm. That's how you know he's shouting. The man and the player that I am today, taking all the responsibility of the situation and for people who didn't want it. And I'm very happy with myself, again, capitalized, to have taken such an important decision. Um, so that was the, uh, the fork in the road. He's a
0: a man's man or a manly man.
3: Do not disrespect Fabio Bruni. I don't know if Santi Cazorla tried. I don't know. Cazorla, I didn't see much respect from him towards Bruni. I didn't see much respect from anyone. And I guess once that decision went against him, when he, when he threw the ball then on the ground and got his first booking, Actually, to be honest, I was amazed he got a second booking so quickly. But maybe if I'd been watching him more closely, I wouldn't have been amazed.
0: You mentioned his former teammates Sunderland celebrating wildly. I haven't seen John O'Shea going as crazy since well, since he scored that goal for Ireland right. against Germany quite recently, and not even when the goal went in. Obviously, that, that those celebrations were pretty raucous. Um, but even um, a minute or two later when the full-time whistle was blown, it was as though the goal had was scored again. It was as though there had been two goals yeah. and they'd come from behind. To, to, you don't uh, often to see players
3: wins. running at that speed after exactly. the final whistle. It was
0: really impressive. So, so we'll talk about Sunderland and Newcastle with our uh, resident Sunderland fan, Jonathan Wilson. And also we're going to have Tim Vickery on about the World Club Championship Real madrid Won that one. Uh, I'm more interested in the interest levels in South America, considering their teams keep losing it now, but uh, it does seem they're quite obsessed by the tournament in Brazil and, and, and Argentina and elsewhere. So we'll get into all that
3: as this show
0: progresses, Ken. Time now for your report on sport.
3: So we'll start with someone who wasn't playing all over the weekend. Um, oh, and, uh, he's he's um, going to be on playing, uh, watching his team um, play tonight, Mourinho, uh, giving an insight into his managerial methods, the methods which have left Chelsea level at the top of the Premier League with Manchester City. The team uh, who um, they... Well, I mean, this is what people are, people are talking about now. Well, City have caught Chelsea up. No, they haven't. Chelsea have a game in hand. You know, I mean, maybe if uh, Chelsea lose that game in hand, then we can say Manchester City have caught Chelsea up. You know, I mean, to, to be three points behind, yeah, certainly they're within striking distance. But they don't look as strong a team to me, certainly. No. So I'm going to stick. I'm going to stick with Chelsea. I'm not feeling in any sense as though maybe I said prematurely that the that the title race was done and dusted. Um,
0: you were doing that thing that bookmakers do to create a headline.
3: Yeah, oh, it's, we, it's we, we award Fred Chelsea Dunn. the
0: league title in September.
3: Yeah, I pretty much did that. Now I have to stick with them. Through uh, what hopefully won't be a winter of discontent for Chelsea's men. Not that José Mourinho would care if his players were discontented, because that uh, doesn't interest him. Um, I mean, they were talking about, uh, he he was being asked, how do you, you know, when you leave out a guy like Felipe Luis or you leave out Andre Scherler, I mean, Andre Scherler's won the World Cup, you know, does he like being a substitute? And Mourinho says, it's not a difficult situation. I'm very club, team, team, club, group. I think everybody has to be ready to sacrifice for the team, to give everything for the team, to think about the team, not to be selfish. This is the way I want a team to be. Uh, Look at Mikel. First time he played was Newcastle. He was our best player. How can he be if he didn't play in three months? Because he's working every day at the top level. Sad, frustrated, not happy, maybe. But professional. That's what I expect. If they're not involved, I don't have a secret to keeping them happy. Um, the reality is, to be successful and work at a high level, you don't need to be happy. Um, so this is uh, this is what Marie is saying. He, he essentially doesn't uh, tell players ever why they're left out of the team. Uh, he does admit, well, if they ask, if they ask me, um, then I will give them an explanation. And he gives an example of a time when this occurred. He said I, said, I said they could knock on my office door if they come to me and ask me to explain, no problem. I had one who asked, knocking on my door, asking why someone else was playing instead of him. I told him, the other man is playing better. Close the door, goodbye.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in other words, you can come and ask me, but I'm just going to belittle you, so don't I'm gonna, bother. You're
3: going to humiliate you, and then afterwards, uh, you'll be worrying about whether coming to see me has maybe bumped you even further down the queue to get back in the team. So don't come and talk to me about it.
0: I do understand uh, this. It sounds like a rather joyless place, this Jose Mourinho dressing room. I must say. Depends
3: uh, if you're in the team. Especially in the
0: team, it's joyful, yeah. Mm. But um, he 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 is quite consistent on those. He has talked in the past, or maybe it's been said on uh, about him that uh, if players are injured, he also doesn't talk to them. He doesn't really care. I mean, he, he talks to the doctors. I'm sure the doctors tell him when this guy is going to be back fit. Yeah. And then he'll start talking to them again. So it seems like a similar thing. If you're not in Jose's match day squad. You're just not, a, you're not actually not a person at, uh, at the club.
3: No, um, you. so you. he's got all these people constantly competing to try and win his approval, uh, which works as long as they want to win his approval. If they despise him and want him sacked, that's different. Yeah. If enough of them start think, thinking that way, then he's got a problem. I mean, it's all based on sort of, oh, you know, who's going to be in my Magic 11? You know, who's inside the circle of magic? this week you know yeah. are you going to be in there and the idea is that the players are all going I want to be in that circle of magic but uh, not everybody can be but that's fine as long as they all still want to be fine but if the players uh, become disillusioned like they do Nico Casillas on it uh, then it's not fine
0: I see Casillas is referenced in that and uh, there's no direct quote from the, in the article I read but uh, it is stated that Casillas never even went to Mourinho.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Mourinho. Mourinho said that Casillas never came to me to. to, That's maybe not too surprising. To talk about, uh, Casillas mightn't have gone
0: to Jose. Yeah, there's a there's a small chance he might have gone to.
3: Go in there and talk to that
0: journalist. To uh, little creature, uh, chance, release some info.
3: So they're playing Stoke tonight, and Manchester City players getting excited, hoping that they're going to lose. I don't think they will, but you never know. Could be uh, we actually could have neck and neck uh, going into Christmas. Uh, Manchester United have lost a little bit of ground over the weekend. Uh, we had been talking about them, you know, putting together this great run of six wins, and it's over now. Um, still unbeaten. Uh, Van Hal telling the journalists, "Look, we've won seven consecutive matches." Um giving the journalists to say well actually you've only won six in a row Um, Van Hal, a rare a rare error from Manchester United's Dutch master uh, who criticizes players a little bit Um, Talking about how, you know, we kept the ball a lot better. Remember, he was complaining about the Liverpool game than giving the ball away all the time. But we didn't create so much because we're not looking to the forwards. That's why I changed Fletcher for Carrick at halftime because I know he's more of a passer to the forwards. But it wasn't good enough to get a victory here. We weren't creative enough. Um, The goal scored by Radamel Falcao. But again, another kind of quiet game for him. Um, To be honest, it doesn't really look as though it's going to really work out, is it? I mean, I don't know. Should we kind of only now expect Falcao to start to produce his his best form? I mean, his cruciate injury was only about a year ago. Maybe it would be unreasonable to expect him to be at a higher level than he now is. I mean, it was a nice header. It showed his neck muscles remain unaffected by his his layoff. But, you know, to uh, kind of almost slightly hanging back in the air, but still managing to get over the top of the ball with the neck and forehead to... Uh, Kind of welly it it is. It looks skull. like
0: uh, slight, uh, Nat Lofthouse style again. No, yeah. Nat, Nat Loftus might be more rigid neck actually. I'd say, but the heading back in those days was more it was your entire body moved.
3: Nat Loftus would rather be coming onto that ball, yeah, with his uh, with Full his sprint. body body weight, yeah. <laughs> Whereas Falcao has slightly kind of hanging backwards and still managing to get a good downward power on it. Um, but of course, he has to be able to run around as well.
0: He does look, yeah. Well, he certainly has looked frustrated when he has been on the field he knows he's better than he's showing and um, mm. but uh, he hasn't been you're, you're off playing for Monaco there's not too many Manchester United fans probably watching you play very often and you arrive at a new club a lot of money and uh, can't really do yourself justice it's a million players have suffered this uh, problem in the past so maybe he'll get around
3: it Yeah um, he he does look excited enough to score at least so his, his goal celebrations are uh, are still top um, just on that Liverpool Arsenal game there was a moment when when Skirtle got that cut in the head. Do you remember this? Yeah. Giroux. And uh, Gary Neville said, Is he wearing blades or studs? And actually, they were already showing Giroux's feet for a while before Neville said this. Now, I think, I wonder, does Gary Neville direct the camera now? Because I, I was reading the Sunday Times the other day. They were talking about, um, you know, Michael Owen now has, has become so in the art of co-commentary that he now directs. That you know.
0: Oh yeah, I'm sure that's the way it's done in the sky as well. Um,
3: so they're showing anyway. Shuri's feet and the camera is kind of pointing in, zooming in on his on his boots. Is he wearing blades or studs? And he was kind of walking along. You could actually see quite clearly that he was wearing studs. But Gary Neville wanted to be absolutely sure. And I was like, yeah, it's studs, yeah. And then just. Away from it, so I was like, where, where is the, Where's the point? denunciation of studs? Well, it's, it's Alex Ferguson, I think, was always going on about blades, it was one of his pet hates. You know, oh, blades, whenever anyone was cut with a stud or a blade, it would always be oh, blades. But uh, in this case, Skirtle's head was sliced open by a stud. It also happens with studs, it does, yeah. Um, by a stud, eight staples on the head. Uh, Martin Skirtle, a kind of a strange game he had. Um, uh, a criminal defensive error Uh, but luckily just as Brendan Rogers was wondering what he was going to say in his Sky interview uh, it turned out he was able to say Martin's a warrior and a strong character to come back and Save that game for us with that last minute. Well, arguably
0: two criminal defensive errors. He wasn't great for either Liverpool
3: goal. No, he wasn't. He wasn't no, or really. either Arsenal goal. Although the, the second one, maybe he could, maybe there's a diffusion of responsibility. Yeah. Uh, it was the lowest possession Arsenal have had in a game, I think since 2006, and the most shots they've had against them in a game. But weren't they the worst shots you've ever seen? <laughs> How have Liverpool managed to get the two worst shooters in Brazil? Coutinho, Coutinho and Lucas. <laughs> I've never seen anything like, what, what? What school of science <laughs> manufactured these? I mean, continued did manage to score a goal. Fair enough. Um, and it was, a, and, he, and I thought overall it had a great game. But so many times arriving onto the ball around the edge of the box and just—he's no Frank Lampard, let's say—and uh, the same goes for Lucas Leiva. And overall, the impression of the game was how have Liverpool not, not managed to manage to not win this game. Even from the beginning, uh, the team that Arsenal picked was was five forwards and. Flamini, yeah, Flamini. Like that's their that, that, that's it's a back four, Flamini, and then five forwards panning yeah, fanning out across the field. That's insane.
0: It's insane. And Arsene Wenger's quotes afterwards were interesting. He he seemed to be. A bit stumped as to why his team failed to perform in attacking sense. He said, "I mean, I, I had five offensive, at least five offensive players out there, and yet we just too couldn't, many. We just couldn't get in. Yeah, but that's because you couldn't get the ball, Arsene. You had thirty-five <laughs> percent possession, which is, in fairness, of all of all crimes to. I don't know why everything's criminal all of a sudden, Ken. Yeah. Of all crimes, to accuse Arsene Wenger of." Uh, failure to keep possession of the ball usually isn't one of them, but yeah. I, don't know what, I don't know what he was up to
3: yesterday. Well, he said, I mean, it's, it doesn't make any sense. He says, we had problems to get our game flowing. We didn't have enough possession in the game. Okay, so he's at least recognised the problem. In the first half, I felt it was down to tactical and psychological reasons. Maybe there were bad memories from last season, that played a part. If there were bad memories from last season, which, by the way, there shouldn't have been, because they are playing against a totally different team last season, if there were bad memories, why does Arsene Wenger tell his team, "Okay, lads, uh, our formation today is back four, Flamini, huge gap, five forwards." You know, are we all happy with that? Well, again, the people in the team are.
0: Uh, well, Flamini mightn't be actually. Flamini <laughs> might be. The- I mean, and,
3: and then he got booked after eleven or twelve minutes. So you're thinking, this is this is going to fall apart badly. There's no way. But then, what happened was miss after miss after miss after miss um and again a, a disappointing result i think for for both of the teams although more disappointing for liverpool given where they are in the table um which is miles off the champions league and in a position that no side has ever finished higher than 6th from the number of points that they now have so brendan rogers is saying oh you know we'll we'll be able to he's saying uh, yeah it was always going to be a big challenge this season uh, of course we have to make up points over the next part of the season but it's a group that can go on a good run last season we won 11 games in a row do that again and we can move up the table very quickly. That true. That's true. There's no doubt about that. But the best Brendan Rodgers quotes, I think, from the weekend, I don't go on about Brendan Rodgers, but it's just that there's no... You can't ignore this man. You just can't ignore him. He's just... He commands the attention. And he commanded the attention because, as we know, Liverpool beat Bournemouth last week. Now, Bournemouth are going very well in the in the championship. I think they won 6-1 or 6-0 on the weekend. Um, you know, top of the championship... Um, decent side, probably better than you know some of the sides at the bottom of the Premier League. Um, not a bad win, Louisville. a losable game. But at the I same think. time, it is only Bournemouth. So when uh, Brent, Brendan Rogers came in and was um, sort of uh, quite uh, uncharacteristically, you know, chin juddy and that sort of thing with the with the media before this Arsenal game, um, and he and he came out with this stuff. He says. Um, we talking about the performance against Bolton Yeah, we had that ability when you've got the players to play in the way we want to work you see the issues and the problems we can cause opponents we had that ability to break forward with speed in the counteract for probably the first time this season that was clear that tactical element is critical to how we work the other night it's a British coach playing 3-4-3 so he's probably thrown the team together oh he's played seven midfielders if it was a foreign coach it would probably have been seen as a wonderful tactical idea of playing the game Sterling playing through the middle, what is he doing? Markovic out wide, but that's the key for us, trying to get the players in position who can make us effective. So, Brendan, if he was called Roger Dicci, then maybe he would uh, he would start getting the credit. I mean, I'm not quite sure how much credit he thinks he should have, given that he is currently, he has, uh, there was, what was Mourinho's uh, phrase? Zero tituli? No trophies. Zero tituli. This was his, uh, his derisive phrase for... Coaches in Serie A who criticised him, they have no zero trophies. Brendan Rogers has zero trophies, with one exception. He's the manager of the year. He's the manager of the year, the overall manager of the year in England, mm-hmm. despite winning nothing. Now, how much credit does he think he should have? Does he think she, he should be the manager of the month every month? I don't. I don't really understand. Well, he still got yeah, he still got a couple of those gongs to go before he reaches
0: joking ears. So Jokingly <laughs> claim he was a three-time manager of the year. That's uh, true. People weren't quite sure if that was the, the case necessarily. Seth Blatter is clinging on to his position. I say clinging on. He, he will be he'll, be. he'll be remaining there until he wants to. Vacay.
3: Well, who knows? I mean, uh, who knows about that? Because at the moment, um, obviously, it looks as though he is going to go and, and win a fifth term, and uh, and that's the way that it's all going to be. Uh, and he's declared his intention to run for the presidency. The, giant, the deadline for uh, candidates, uh, and the only other candidate so far is Jerome Champagne, who we interviewed a few months back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that Jerome Champagne is going to beat Seth Blatter if they, if they're the only two candidates. I'm pretty sure that he won't. But what if Blatter was to pull out before that date? Would that help to solve some of FIFA's problems? Seems to be some. There are some kind of uh, sources. Suggest that within FIFA, a lot of people are kind of going, Well, Sep, I know you, you actually, it's clear by now that you really enjoy this. <laughs> you actually enjoy uh, being the, the leader of this uh, so called disgraced organization. Uh, and sort of, uh, you enjoy the frustration of your uh, critics and enemies who can't lay glove on you. Uh, and you kind of get a kick out of that and giving the work up to, to Russia and Qatar or whatever. But actually some of us are are feeling a little embarrassed by it. And also some of us have our own political ambitions and we we think this might be a good way to get rid of you. Uh, That there are discussions going on within FIFA as to whether Sepp Blatter really is going to do that to the organization. Whether he's really going to put himself out there again for a fifth time. Or whether maybe it might be time to stand aside and uh, let somebody with a clean slate take over.
0: Didn't he tell Platini last time that he was going to step aside?
3: Leave the way clear. He did, but um... I don't know if he cares too much about the uh, the,
0: the others within the organisation. But we'll uh, wrap up your report on sport with that.
1: A
3: flame-haired,
2: flame-haired,
3: flame, a flame a of truth, flame Mr. Mr. truth, Mr Ken Early. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone John Hayes, I'm talking about. On John Hayes. No, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot,
0: Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now For you give it up. Jonathan Wilson joins us now to talk about. We mentioned the celebrations earlier, Jonathan. Uh, Sunderland winning this game at Newcastle. uh, their fourth in a row, I think, in these derby games, which is pretty impressive So They didn't really hold back. Did you enjoy it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Derby's sort of take on increased significance when the two teams have very little else to play for. Um, that You're not going to win a league, you're probably not going to win a cup, but what you can do is be the best team in, in your region. And for Sunderland, that, that has not been the case for, for a long, long time. And I think yeah, my generation of Sunderland fans, uh, it's it's quite a rare feeling to, to I, mean, I mean, no Sunderland fans have ever experienced winning four, Four derbies in a row, but uh, to have a sense of superiority in the region, even though we're even below, even though some of them are below cast on the table, is, is unusual and, and very pleasant.
3: Well, it's interesting you say that the, the derby is, you know, taking on more significance because it seemed as though, well, I saw certainly there were some pieces suggesting that the kind of atmosphere between the supporters was a little bit more friendly than it has been in, uh, in a lot of recent years.
2: Well, I think that's true, but I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I think you can have significance and importance and passion without necessarily having the nastiness, which has unfortunately crept in again in the last sort of 10 years. Um, But, I mean, a a huge amount of work was done um, by local fans groups, uh, by local MPs. I think the policing has actually been very enlightened. um, There had been a policy for a while of of making uh, what's called a bubble match, where Southern fans going to Newcastle have to board certain buses in them they're, they're escorted through, or, and you know, vice versa. And that that actually seems to be an increasing form of, of policing um, potentially dangerous games in in, in England. Uh, but the danger of that is it creates—I uh, mean, a—it creates a confrontational atmosphere from the start, and b—you'd have absurd situations where it's it's not. It's not common, but it's not uncommon either that you'd have a, a Sunderland fan who lives in Newcastle who's being asked to travel all the way to Sunderland to get a bus to come back. He's then kept in the ground for hours after the game. He's taken back to Sunderland and asked to, you know, pick up his car and go back to Newcastle again, which is, you know, a kind of insanity. So, I think everybody's just been very mature about it. And, and I mean, the, the sad thing, I guess, is it's the, the tragedy—the in the Malaysian Airlines plane's gone down with the two Newcastle fans going to New Zealand on board, which has sort of brought everybody together, that um you you saw yesterday in the seventeenth minute because it was you know, that was the number of the flight, both sets of fans had a minute's applause. And then the thirty third minute, because Sunderland fans had raised thirty three thousand pounds for charity for those two two fans, um, Newcastle fans applauded Sunderland fans. And then <laughs> rather beautifully, as soon as the thirty third minute had over it was it was over, there was a chorus of you know if, if you hate something, clap your hands, which is as it should be.
0: Yeah, I thought I, I, thought I picked that up. But I, wasn't, I wasn't quite sure uh, if, that, if that was the case. But I was struck by that as well, Jonathan, just uh, how together they seem, they seem to be on that. And I mean, you might say, well, it's just common decency for Sunderland fans to join in the applause. But I mean, it hasn't always, I mean, we know between with other clubs in England that, that tragedies aren't necessarily uh, forces for, for unification between clubs. In fact, they can often be used as another stick to beat the other ones with.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'd hope that, I mean, particularly when the tragedy is so, so fresh that people would be respectful. Uh, I think this has actually gone significantly beyond respect. I think this was, um, you know, it was, it was sort of, a, it was a recognition of, you know, this could easily have been us. It wasn't because they were Newcastle fans this happened. It was fans going to watch their team abroad. And, and you yeah, know, going to New Zealand is an awful long way to go for some pre-season friendly games. Uh, and And... You know, a, a general sense of respect and, and a, and a, and a uh, sort of yeah, a recognition that this could have happened to any one of us, and so we you know, we should should acknowledge that and acknowledge our together our togetherness. Partly in football
3: and partly in the northeast. Uh, I mean, the goal with which Sunderland won the game was a brilliant goal. I mean, so many kind of moments of of drama in the move when it could have gone either way, and then that sort of half second pause before Adam Johnson smashes the ball in. Um, it turns out that Adam Johnson may not have been on the field at the time if Gus Poyet had. had um, well, essentially, Gus Poyet seems uh, seems to be managing, judging by what he said after the match. Um, he's kind of managing by using the force rather than <laughs> thinking out, okay, what, what does the team actually need? The, the quote from him is, I have to be honest, I was going to take Adam off, but for some reason I didn't. And he went on to score the win goal. We had his number ready on the board for it to go up. Then I said to my bench, no, make it number 10. Make it Connor Wickham instead.
0: Thought, well, they were both missing plenty of chances. So I had, had to be one of them.
3: Do you do you think that's a bit a bit strange? Because Poidevin is kind of standing there, about to make a substitution, and literally he has no idea who who it is that he's gonna that he's gonna take off.
2: Well, I mean, I, I guess the the counter argument is that they, they were two players fulfilling similar roles. They were the two the two wide men in the four three three. He knows he wants to bring on Buckley to add a bit more energy. Uh, somebody who's going to drop a bit deeper. Uh, so you take off one of those two Bucs can play on either side they can swap over Um, and Johnson had that chance just before I I think Johnson had the chance where he just um, he turned inside Colaccini and he he, he just failed to wrap his foot around the ball sufficiently and he sort of poked it wide he totally forgot to bend the ball
0: it was one of those ones Jonathan where you're supposed to you can see exactly what he's trying to do but he forgot about the bit where you actually need to just curl it inside the post and it just sort of dribbled off which looked bizarre
2: yeah, exactly. So at that moment, and I, I guess it, it, was, it was right then that, that Buckley was sort of on the touchline getting ready to come on. So I, 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 I would imagine that moment sort of persuaded Poyot that actually maybe Johnson is, is the biggest threat at the moment, that uh, maybe Wickham's run himself out of this, and Johnson's um, greater technical ability on the break may be more useful. So if you want to rationalise it, I guess that that is the thought process. Um, but yeah it seems to have been a, a fairly fortuitous yeah, last minute change of mind but yeah instinct what, what does instinct come from instinct often comes from from knowledge it's a way of sort of accessing information you have in, a, in a, an efficient and rapid way if you believe that Martin but we haven't
3: um, we haven't really had a chance to talk to you Jonathan about Alan Pardew and the bizarre season that he's been having I mean different explanations have been advanced for this you know one is that Pardew has, has kind of um, you know, managed to, to, to finally recognize wh- what the team is among this sort of hodgepodge of a squad that he has. And actually, he's he's done a really good job. And others, you know, that he's he's got some kind of a deal with the devil. Um, nobody really knows exactly how to explain it. But Newcastle's results do look really random. Is the lesson here that in fact Alan Barger doesn't matter at all and it's just a convenient <laughs> pinata for, for us to talk about uh, to refer to Newcastle's results and in fact he's got about as much influence on what's happening as any of the other uh, Newcastle supporters in that stadium.
2: Well, well, Donny Rani has a theory doesn't he that, that managers only exist as a sort of as uh, sort of a deflection shield, that, that sort of that they were invented by boards in the nineteen twenties. So that rather than the fans turning on the board, they could turn on this man who had to stand on the touchline. His job was just sort of take all the grief, and Pardieu <laughs> seems to do that exceptionally well. Um, I mean, you say random, but I mean, they're the, the, actually the, the pattern of this season is remarkably similar to last season. That a sort of slightly iffy start, they beat Chelsea, Pardieu wins Manager Month in November, and then everything goes horribly wrong again. And it seems to be following um following that pattern. Uh, I, I guess you, you might argue that something in their pre season means they peak in November. I, I I don't know. Um my my suspicion is that I mean yeah it's it's a little bit like I, I felt towards the end of last season when Sunland suddenly had that run when they got thirteen points in five games and they started beating Chelsea away, Manchester United away. And Poiot is massively praised. And, well, he just won all his games in one block at the end of the season. And you can, you know, if you were somebody who sees only stats in football, you would say, OK, that's on the team. We've programmed to get an average of one point per game over the season. And that is exactly what they ended up with. It's just they they, they clumped those points together. That doesn't make Poirier a great manager. It makes him, yeah, the adequate manager to getting one point per game. This season, before Sunday, Sunday had exactly one point per game. It's just they got them all in almost all in draws. It was less dramatic and therefore there was less focus on points. And perhaps it's the same with Kaji. This is just a squad which, because of its money and because of his abilities, will get, you know, whatever it is, 1.2 points per game. And that's roughly what they're they're getting. It's just that they they had that clump in November again for for whatever reason.
0: Happy days for Sonnenberg. Happy days at least against Newcastle anyway, uh, Jonathan. Great to talk to you. Thanks a million. Well,
2: everyone's a matter.
0: (laughs) Just keep playing them every week. Thanks for meeting. Great stuff. Cheers. Thanks. What do you think of that theory advanced by Barney Ronay, Ken, of the manager being <laughs> invented in the nineteen twenties by uh, by club club chairman and club boards, just to deflect some of the anger of the fans?
3: Yeah, it's. Uh, I can I can see the the point. I mean, there is there there are the see the fans don't want to turn on the players because they like the players. They would kind of want to be the players. But the manager is kind of a halfway house, you know. The manager, um. I mean maybe the boards then regretted that you know it was kind of they created this uh monster. Uh, the managers became very powerful in the 60s and 70s. Right up
0: until about Brian Clough, the, the boards were still reasonably happy. They had, a bit of, they had a bit of control over Stan Culliskin, a little mm. bit, you know, these kind of characters.
3: Well, Matt Busby, Bill Shankly, they were they were kind oh, of... Well, that's uh, true, yeah. well, I suppose they were, even even still, they were more or less kept putting their place a lot by the boards. There's
0: still a lot of answering to the boards from those managers. Yeah. At the very least, they had to answer to them and possibly were bossed around a little bit. Maybe, maybe, maybe Busby was one of the first ones to... You don't know. Maybe Herbert Chapman, again, for all we know, was telling the Herb board Chapman. at Highbury what's what. <laughs> how to? Don't tell me how to pick my team. Yeah. Um, Very, very, very posh. Uh, whatever Wood was in charge of uh, Arsenal back in those days. Now Real Madrid won the Club World Cup over the weekend, beating San Lorenzo. Club World Championship uh, 2-0. Uh, this was it has been a huge deal in South America. We're joined by Tim Vickery to talk about this. Over the years, Tim, it's been a huge deal. But in the last eight finals, there have been seven European winners, only four goals scored by the South Americans uh, in those games, Ken tells me, which is a pretty damning statistic. Has the interest there begun to take a hit? No, not at all. Um, in
1: fact, uh, you, you've, you've put your, your finger right on the problem of this tournament, which is the huge imbalance of these days between football in Europe and not just South America, but the rest of the world. Um, and in a way this imbalance only makes the South Americans want the, <laughs> the, the trophy even more, you know, and the, uh, The whole thing from the South American point of view is the idea of having a crack at those rich, glamorous cousins, the winners of the Champions League for the other side of the Atlantic. And now that they're even more richer and even more glamorous, that just increases the desire to try and put one over them, Um, even though I think the only way that the South Americans can win these days is uh, is by scoring a goal on a breakout and then just praying for the final whistle, Um, which is a huge problem, I think, in, order, in in terms of selling this, this tournament to, to the European audience because what we'd love to see is two well-matched sides going at each other, um, but it's difficult to see how that can happen.
3: The imbalance that you're talking about, Tim, though, is something which is only the case off the field because oh, although you could say that there is an imbalance also on the field and it's decidedly in favour of South America. I mean, this has been a team which has uh, kind of emerged... Certainly, a lot of people have been talking about it this season. Is the, the obvious superiority of strikers from South America um, to to European strikers? I think Arsene Wenger, uh, talking about this recently, said we actually don't produce strikers in Europe anymore. Um, not when you you know when you see Aguero, uh, you see Alexis Sanchez, Diego Costa, uh, Luis Suarez's absence almost is is the is it one of the dominant strikers in the Premier League. What is it? Uh, what do you think is going on here? Why is, is this simply coincidence or, um, or, or is there something that's happening over there that just isn't happening here?
1: Well, I think it, it's certainly more than coincidence. And uh, to give weight to my spurious arguments, I'm going to cite Barcelona, who probably have one of the best, if not the best, youth academy systems in the world. Where do they get their strikers from at the moment? It's a South American trident. You know, they've got Messi from, from Argentina, Suarez from Uruguay, Neymar from Brazil. Now, I know that Messi, they helped form. But Messi is, if you like, a perfect synthesis between, on the one hand, the Barcelona Academy, and on the other, old-fashioned South American street football. The kind of thing which is also produced in Uruguay, Suarez, and in in, in Brazil, Neymar. and And... What these South American strikers, all the ones that you you mentioned, um, who are doing well in the Premier League, what they've got is the thing that can't be taught. It's the spontaneous genius in one-against-one situations, Uh, and uh, you can have as many academies as you like. You're not going to produce that. That's not something that, that, that can be taught. It's something which is learnt spontaneously. Uh, and there are problems in South America with urban violence and real estate speculation eating up a lot of the space that has been used historically for, for informal street park wasteland football. But I still think you get that kind of football far more in South America than you do in Europe. And that, to my mind, is the key to the creation of these players who are capable of doing the unexpected, it, it, op- it, it, it kind of operates on on an instinctive level, on that level that can't be taught, which is developed spontaneously from a very early age in informal football.
3: Yeah, I mean, Dennis Bergkamp um, obviously now works at Ajax and uh, for a long time was in charge of their academy and still holds up Luis Suarez as the example of the player that he's trying to create there. Uh, and he says, well, it's just impossible. Uh, you know, these, uh, the kids uh, who are coming to the academy in Amsterdam, um, in Bergkamp's opinion, have everything kind of figured out for them in advance. That they, they, they don't sort of have to think, they don't have to think for themselves, which he reckons is how, uh, you know, doing this at an early age is what makes, um, is, is what brings the kind of creativity that Suarez is bringing to the game. That in fact, if the environment is too structured, too kind of safe, in a way. I mean, everyone wants their kids to be safe, but if it's too safe, you're just going to end up with a lot of boring, do the obvious football players.
1: I would agree with that 100%. I mean, the uh, the ability shown by these South American strikers is, is almost a metaphor for the abilities that the poor kid born on the wrong side of the tracks on this side of the Atlantic, the ability that he needs to survive, that little bit of sharpness. Um, I was back in England uh, two or three months ago. Uh, and in discussions with the, the, the PFA, the, 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 the Players' Association, who are looking into youth development and, and trying to compare it with, with the South American school and so on. and there, there are one or two teams in England nowadays who, as a part of, of the development of their players, are artificially trying to put in difficulty and unpredictability. For example, the game will be tomorrow at 3 o'clock in the afternoon Find your own way there. We're not going to take you there. You find your own way there. You know, little things like that to try and make it less structured. Because I think they've come to exactly the conclusion that Dennis Burkamp has come to, that if everything is structured, you don't produce the little bit of individual spontaneous genius which, especially in one-against-one situations, tips to balance on the football field.
0: Oh, yeah, I don't know, though, Tim. I mean, I was watching these two philosophies come face-to-face in the in the World Cup in Brazil as you were in the semi-final there, and it looked like the very well-organised, um, very mollycoddled German team kicked the head out of <laughs> the off-the-cuff Brazilians. Well, Brazilian
1: football, on a, on a kind of macro level, has, has, has changed direction over the last 30, 30 or, or, or 40 years. Um, and they still create... The, uh, the 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 team that they put out, all right, it didn't have Neymar, but there are people there like William, really talented uh, uh, one against one uh, players. What they don't have anymore is the central midfielder who thinks the game. Um, you know, you, you think of the greatness of Brazilian football and how much it was it was forged around possession of the ball in centre of midfield. Um, the likes of, of Zito and Gigi when they won the World Cup in 58 and 62, Clodo Aldo and Gerson in 70, even Falcão and Cerezo when uh, they played so, so wonderfully in, in 82. That's the kind of player that they've forgotten how to produce. I mean, the great Toxtal from the 1970 team, probably the wisest person ever to represent Brazil, he's saying, look, you know, we haven't created a single world-class midfielder, central midfielder in more than 20 years. Now, that's the kind of footballer that you can create, but they haven't wanted to create that kind of footballer because they haven't wanted to play that kind of game. It's it's a philosophical decision that they took, um, thinking that you can't play modern uh, in the modern age. The physical development of the game means that you can't play possession football. So all we're going to do is fill our middle our midfield with cloggers. We're going to break quickly and win the game on uh, counter attacks and set pieces. Germany, on the other hand, sat down and watched and paid close attention to what Barcelona were doing. And thought, well, you know, Barcelona have been able to create Xavi's and Iniesta's. We can sit down and do the same thing. So um, you look at a player like, say, Toni Kroos, for example. Um, It's the kind of player who can be created. A wonderful, wonderful player for me. I would have him on the podium without doubt as World Player of the Year. I think he hardly ever hits a pass wrong. It's the kind of player that you can create. Germany, because... They've thought about the process, have been creating that kind of player over the past few years. Brazil, because they haven't wanted to create that, that, that kind of player, they turn their back on that kind of football, haven't. Um, so I think that's an object lesson in what can be done. And what Germany have done over the past 10 years shows the progress that you can make. But in that German side, where are the strikers with the one against one genius, they put, they they haven't got them, you know. Their only out-and-out out striker in their World Cup group was was the veteran closer, um, so that they can't produce that kind of spontaneous one against one genius that the South Americans can excel in. Mm. But they can produce those players who can think and understand the game from central midfield.
3: We're, we often hear uh, Tim that um, football is too competitive. we're always hearing this in Ireland and England especially parents on the sidelines shouting, coaches are uh, you know too interested in results uh, when in fact the only important thing at that age uh, you know at a young kind of age kids you know age five six seven eight nine, ten um, is the development of, of technique of, of ability on the ball but I was interested to read recently um, about the books by Sergio Aguero and, and Luis Suarez. Uh, not books, I don't think, that are going to give you any kind of a real insight into the souls of these two men. But they do talk a bit about their uh, childhood and their development. And one common uh, factor is, that I was impressed by was how competitive the football they were involved in early age was. Aguero's playing for money. He's like six years old. He's playing for money on the street. Uh, you know, or not, not, not on the street exactly. You know, he's on the park next to his house. Everyone's everyone's playing for money. Suarez talks about this baby football they play in in uh, Uruguay. He says, you know, small sided uh, games. You know, six aside, five aside, or whatever. Uh, so far, so similar to what they're doing in Europe now. He says, but in Europe they seem to to advocate a kind of a, a non-contact, a non-contact idea. Whereas in Uruguay, we were just kicking the hell out, out of each other. It was incredibly <laughs> violent and competitive from the earliest possible age.
1: Sure, uh, and these, and one of the things that these players have is this very, very fierce competitive streak, and that's in them from from the the, the earliest age possible. Obviously, as you go through the structure, it's the organized structure which should be prioritizing technique over results. Often in South America, that doesn't actually happen for economic reasons. Um, And this is something which uh, is recognized in Brazil as a problem with with their youth structure, that the youth coaches often aren't paid very well. So what do they want to do? They want to win the title in order to draw attention to their work and get promoted to a higher level. And there's a famous, uh, it's from about a decade ago now, um, it's a World Under-17 Cup where Brazil beats Spain in the final. And the Brazil team are twice as big as the Spanish team. It's a Spanish team which produced, among others, Cesc Fabregas, an example of, of, of the kind of midfield thinker, a fella who can pass the ball from central midfield, the, the, the kind of player that, that, that we're talking about. Now, Spain played most of the football that day and lost 1 0 to a goal scrambled in from a set piece against opponents who were far bigger. Of that Brazil side who won that under 17 World Cup, not one, I don't I think don't, don't, there have been any who've come anywhere near establishing a senior international career. The Spanish side, I think that side had Fabregas, Silva, and a number of others who've come through. So I remember the Spanish coach after the game saying, we were the Brazilians on the field. Spain won that tournament. Even though the final result says, you know, Brazil won, Spain nil in the final. The only aim of youth football is to produce players for the senior side. If you haven't done that, you failed. But the Brazilian coach, he would have thought at the time that he succeeded because he's put a title on his CV and therefore he's got himself a little bit higher up the food chain, so these economic pressures—there's no doubt about it—they are they are a problem for for youth youth, youth development. And ideally, I think this uh, this kind of youth development thing is all is all about striking a balance. You 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 want at some point you want the, the competitive element to be part, but it, it should always be subsidiary to the idea of of long term development. And Barcelona, for example, I mean, I, I saw uh, two or three years back the head of Barcelona's youth development, come and give a lecture to Brazilian coaches. And he said, right from the start, all the way to Barcelona's B team, which plays in the Spanish second division, we are not bothered by results. It is not our priority. Our priority is to develop players. And for a Brazilian audience of coaches, that was quite hard. You know, and the, the, the fellow who was at that time, the coach of, of Brazil's senior side, Mano Menezes, he got up and he said, this is great, but here in Brazil, we can't be like that. We have to be obsessed with results at every at every level. It's 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 part of of our makeup. And ideally, of course, you you want some some kind of balance, but no doubt about it. Long term technique is is the priority. And uh, usually when Europeans come over, and they study the formal youth development structures in Brazil and Argentina, you know, the countries that produce more players anywhere else, they're not impressed at all with the work that goes on in these formal structures. They're saying, well, they're not doing anything different from what we do in Europe. And they're even doing things that, that, that we've, we have we've stopped doing a few years ago. The key differential in South America is it, it's what happens outside the formal structure. It, it's, it's the informal football that they're playing from a very early age. And it's the sheer quantity of kids who are prepared to gamble their all on a, on a professional career in the game.
0: Yeah, we'll leave it there, Tim. Brilliant stuff. So thanks a million. Thank you. Uh, what, uh, I mean, uh, my interest has peaked, Ken, in this story you told there of Aguero playing for money.
3: Yeah, I mean, they don't, uh, they're playing for money, they're betting on the games, they're playing it, you know, like the winner gets the money.
0: Oh, so the kids are betting with the kids The
3: kids are, like, scraping together the cash, and then the winner gets gets all the pop. Think,
0: yeah, I don't think we I don't, did you ever do that? I don't
3: think No, it never occurred to me to do that. No,
0: just, it was just an enjoyable game to play.
3: Yeah, no, it's, uh, Aguero would do that, and then you go and buy all these uh Mr. Freeze, kind of freeze pops, you know? Mm-hmm he'd like stand there, suck down a few of these and then that would give him the energy to play for another seven or eight Imagine hours. Imagine
0: how good Sergio Aguero was when he was even oh, eight or nine. Considering he's playing senior football at 15.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Well, in fairness, Sergio Aguero playing senior football at 15, I have to say, I'm, I think there may have been a marketing element involved in that decision. Right. It's not as though he states that explicitly anywhere, but the fact is, Younger than Maradona, younger than Pele, younger, younger than Romario, younger than any of these guys to make his debut. That's when you hear something like that, all the clubs in Europe are going, is this guy any good? Have we, do we know anything about this guy? You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not saying, Aguero is obviously brilliant. Um, it's not as though, but I mean, when he, he played at 15 and then he didn't play again for ages, you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, he eventually sort of, in fairness, he, he, was, he left Independiente before he was 18, I think and he'd already scored 50 or 60 goals so an outstanding player i don't
0: yeah i don't totally buy into this uh, theme that we're talking about here of players being too moddy in europe and growing up in the tough streets of brazil I mean, for a start there are plenty of footballers still coming from rougher areas in the uk and 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 in europe and maybe the level of poverty in some of these places you're talking about in south america is uh, another step down or, you know,
3: it's not even strictly poverty as such. It's more a kind of um, an unstructuredness, a kind of a slightly chaotic element to life. Things can just happen, which it's, it's. I don't know how to describe it. It's, if you're, I mean, people just don't necessarily, you, you would have to have your wits about you, let's say, in a way that you don't really need in Europe, you got to go around in Europe, people sort of behave a certain way, you know, um, people form cues for stuff, you know, it's just like, there's just a sort of a, a basic structuredness to life, which takes a lot of the thinking out of it. Mm. It's not that way in South America, at least not the bits of South America that i was in. it's a lot more, you know, people can do, you know, if they want to, If the bar wants to stay open all night, they'll they'll absolutely do that. But how does all this lead to better strikers? I mean, I I
0: mentioned (laughs) that that Germany-Brazil game and I saw Fred playing for one team and I I take the point that Tim raises there that uh, Thomas Muller, he didn't mention Muller by name, but that uh, Klose was the only genuine striker in the German team. Hmm. But they have got Thomas Muller there who's going to obliterate Miroslav Klose's all-time record. He's not a stereotypical
3: number nine. No, he's not a number nine and he's not a one-on-one player. He's a team player who scores lots of goals. I don't know, maybe they've just evolved to, a, uh, you know, th- this this idea of... I mean, Aguero against Bayern Munich was this the confrontation of these two. Admittedly, Bayern down to 10. But, you know, Aguero's, single, Aguero's single-handedly destroying Bayern Munich was, I have to say, a beautiful thing to watch. I don't know, it's just... Maybe it's harder to warm to this kind of uh, Borg-like team that Bayern Munich are. You know, this kind of um, almost like a super-intelligent organism... You know, when you see a little guy like Aguero come along and just uh, beat them by himself, uh, that's something...
0: Your hmm. first um, first reference to the Borg all year, Ken, and it's taken oh, you the to the end get, of December there. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Alan. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, do have a listen to our other sh- our show out there today, and uh, we will be chatting to you plenty over Christmas as well, but we will be bringing you some of the... Some of the best bits from the year and also um, plenty of uh, plenty of live stuff, plenty of updates as the Christmas programme, um, particularly the Christmas football programme, progresses. So we'll chat to you during those shows.
2: Take care. Bye. The is that, That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those guys. Those,
3: those